Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, and writers to hear the stories behind their work. The Indiana primary election is on May 3rd. In honor of Election Day, we're listening to two conversations that comment on the state of American politics. In the second half of the program, we'll listen to a 2015 Profiles conversation with Mara Lyason. Mara Lyason is the national political correspondent for NPR. During her tenure, she has covered six presidential elections. But first, we'll hear a conversation with former Indiana Senator Richard Luger and former Indiana Congressman Lee Hamilton. The conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at the University of Southern Indiana on March 23, 2016. The topic of the conversation was Civility in American Politics. The conversation was moderated by University of Southern Indiana President Linda Bennett and has been edited for broadcast. The first voice you'll hear is University of Southern Indiana President Linda Bennett. Let's just jump in, and I, I really want to start with a little bit of a historic perspective. I want us to look back a little bit so that we can put our current time in perspective. And I, I have to ask this question, uh, because quite often civility and American politics are not often grouped together. <laughs> so I, oh, they laughed, that's good. Um, I do have to ask though, do you think of a golden age of civility in American politics? I mean, was there a time when it really was possible to have civil exchange across differences? Go ahead, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me start by saying that I believe that when America is attacked, when we're in crisis, uh, we come together. For example, after 9-11 or the Pearl Harbor attack. Now, these occurred during my lifetime. But uh, I recall... On those occasions, although there have been great foreign policy differences between the parties or the president and the Congress at that time, it became apparent very rapidly that we needed to talk to each other. As a matter of fact, we needed to come together to defend ourselves, to defend our country. Now, this shouldn't always have to be a crisis that brings about civility, but you ask historically. These are two lifetime points that I remember. As a, as a student, of politics, and you, uh, Mrs. President, would know better than this, but uh, during our Constitutional Convention and the coming together of those that really brought the foundations for our country, that dialogue proceeded over several years of time. This was not simply a, a simple meeting or that a few weeks of time. And very substantial differences among great people who we revere. But at the same time, uh, they persisted because they realized they were forming a nation and they were hopeful it would be a great nation and this was going to require their participation. Uh, I, I hate to see it lapse all the way from the Constitution uh, to Pearl Harbor. Uh, I'm certain there, there may have been some other happy times in the meantime. <laughs> but I rely upon my colleague, Lee, to... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not enough of a historian to know if there have been eras of uh, civility. What I do know is there have been 
examples of marvelous civility over a period of many years. When George Washington was 16 years of age, he said that we must treat everyone with respect. And I've often found myself uh, thinking that the politicians today could learn a lot from 16-year-old George Washington. <laughs> Civility is uh, absolutely essential to both the quantity and the quality of work that you're able to do. If you have an environment of distrust, of mean-spiritedness, of anger, uh, you're not going to get much done. Civility is a lubricant. It is a lubricant in all human transactions, not just political. With your friends, with your organizations that you belong to, you know how important civility is. And it is hugely important in politics. Don't ever forget the importance of the amenities. Let me cite the example of the 9-11 Commission on which I serve. We were fortunate to have this chairman, Thomas Kane, who was a former governor of uh, New Jersey. And he insisted when we had five Democrats and five Republicans come together to work on some of the most contentious homeland security issues you can imagine. He insisted that for two or three meetings, we never do any business, but we get to know one another. So that I looked across the aisle and saw Ed Meese, the arch enemy for a Democrat like myself. <laughs> and I got to know Ed Meese not as a Republican or as a conservative, but as a family man and as a friend. And I put away the label Republican or conservative, and I'm sure he had to do the same thing with dealing with Lee Hamilton. So civility was crucial to the ability of the 9-11 Commission to work. And I can't think of a single time when you could make progress in, a, in an atmosphere of distrust. The reason that Dick and I were able to work together so much is because we were very civil to one another, didn't always agree with one another, but we always had our eye on the target and that was to try to solve the problem in front of us. Civility is the lubricant, it's the essential, and without it, you just don't get very far. Do you see much evidence of that today? And I'm not trying to be facetious, I really am not. But I mean, in terms of how our government, our national institutions are operating today. Well, I think there isn't any doubt that uh, you're in a rough patch now. <laughs> rough patch. And uh, the big question is how you get out of it. Yeah. Uh, not an easy question to answer. Of course, you see, you see civility every day. There are a lot of politicians who are very civil. But it is true that overall, the Congress, which as a public uh, steam rating of less than 10%, the lowest in its history, has become excessively partisan, excessively uncivil, and therefore, as you should expect, very, very unproductive. Can, I can give you some modern examples, and Dick and I uh, shared this experience. Uh, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill. 
Ronald Reagan, the great conservative, Tip O'Neill, the great liberal, who was Speaker of the House at the time. We had a lot of meetings together. I don't want to suggest those discussions were easy. I don't want to say there were never tensions that arose. There certainly were. There was very robust, vigorous debate. But I can't remember either the President or the Speaker becoming uncivil. And both of them tried to top each other with an Irish story. <laughs> and one of the things they always did was try to end the meeting on a, a note of levity so that people left the meeting with a good feeling. I learned a lot from those two master politicians and uh, civility was a big part of it. Let me so, mention uh, Ronald Reagan again. At the time that uh, it first became apparent that there might be an arms control treaty between the former Soviet Union and the United States. And this was during this period, 40 year period, which we forget, a so-called mutually assured destruction. In that period of time, the United States uh, had weapons aimed at Russia and its military and its uh, cities and the, and the Russians likewise. I, I recall as mayor of Indianapolis, I was not aware we were under the gun, but any one of those nuclear warheads that I saw in Kazakhstan where we were taking down those warheads would have obliterated my whole city. This was for 40 years. Uh, Reagan knew that in order to get a treaty, you need a two-thirds majority in the Senate. He, he asked eight Republicans, eight Democrats, as I recall, to go to Geneva, Switzerland, including the leadership, Bob Dole and Bob Byrd. Sam Nunn was one of the Democrats that was selected, and I was one of the Republicans. We got to know each other well. As it turned out, uh, all of that fell through in 1986. Sam and I continued to meet with some of the Russians that we had met around that time. I skipped five years later, the Soviet Union's collapsing. Some of the Russians we've been meeting with came to Washington. We sat around a round table in Sam's office that I rolled down to my office when Sam left the Senate, and now we're at the Luger Center now. Uh, and uh, the, Re the Russians said, you folks in the United States are in a lot of trouble. I said, in what way? He said, well, some of the uh, warheads, nuclear warheads that are aimed at you, your cities, your military, um, may be deserted because uh, troops are deserting. They're trying to support themselves. They're trying to take material off the base. There could be an accident that there hasn't been in 40 years. And uh, you've got problems. I said, what do you want from us? They said, well, a lot of your money to begin with. <laughs> and then we're going to need some technicians to take down the missiles, take off the warheads, begin to destroy all of the above. By the time we're finished, we don't know what's going to happen in this breakup of the Soviet Union that was going on at that time. We may need some of your troops and all. Now, this was the beginning of the Nunn-Luger Cooperative Threat Reduction Act, which was assisted greatly by Ash Carter, who was then a junior fellow at Belfer and Harvard, came down, issued a white paper to a breakfast, once again, of bipartisan groups of senators that we brought together. And in the course of a couple of weeks at the end of that session in 91, we passed the Nunn-Luger Act, and the House went along, and uh, that began a 20-year period of time in which the United States and Russia literally took down one weapon after another. We both had well over 10,000 nuclear warheads aimed at each other at the beginning. After the various arms control treaties down to about 1,500 each, and maybe lower than that as it stands, and that's still an awful lot. But I, I mention this because uh, for 20 years, 
either Sam or I had to get an appropriation money from the Congress to continue the work of the Nunn-Luger Act that year. And other members would put all sorts of stipulations on there, and we had to work patiently through that to make certain the work kept going. I went over to, to Russia, Kazakhstan, Belarus, uh, Ukraine, uh, at least twice a year to uh, help encourage and uh, supervise or find out new ways we could be helpful as we thought also about chemical weapons and biological weapons began to bob up into the picture. This was, was bipartisanship, I think, at its best. And over a, a decade in which there were four different presidents coming and going, different cabinet members. But the security of our country was at stake. If, if somehow that had gotten fouled up and there had been a mistake, and there had been a, a city in this United States of America annihilated, or our base or so forth, history would be very different. So I, I mentioned, as we're taking a look at the grim situation now, the fact is right now we could not possibly pass an arms control treaty. The last one we passed was the final year that I was in the Senate in 2012. And this happened after the election was over and everybody wanted to go home. Somehow got the so-called New Star Treaty across the line. But since that time, the Congress has become much more volatile and partisan. It's really sort of a record breaker, as our new group center bipartisan index indicates. And uh, it won't go away rapidly. But I think there have been times in which things did work, thank goodness, for the sake of the country. And there are a lot of people still alive because that was the case. There are those, whenever you say, you talk about the topic of civility, and they think you're talking about being polite, about being nice, about being kinder and gentler. And sometimes, sometimes the thought is that it's a way of avoiding the difficult decisions. It's a way of avoiding difficult times. So I just have to ask, because I already know that you have strong opinions about this, but is the practice of civility easy? The practice of civility with your friends is easy. The test of civility is to be nice to a person you don't like, who hates your guts, <laughs> with whom you disagree on all the big issues. That's the test. But I think it's important to recognize that our system demands robust debate. And I think a lot of Americans get a little uneasy when they turn on C-SPAN and see people going at one another in political debate. One of the things you become conscious of in the Congress is that you're dealing with controversy everywhere you go. You go to a subcommittee, you're arguing. You go to the committee meeting, you're arguing. You go onto the floor of the house, you're arguing. You go to the hotel for a panel discussion, you're arguing with somebody. Those, that's okay, robust debate is fine. You ought not to fall off your chair if somebody disagrees with you. So you need robust debate. And it's not always in uncivil to engage in that kind of debate. Now, I understand there's a line here. It can get out of hand, and it's not easy to draw that line. Sometimes it becomes very uncivil and very disappointing to all of us. But uh, keep in mind that robust debate is very much a part of the American system. Our problem with the American system now, this seems to be more apparent than maybe it was in other days, is that there are a number of members of Congress who are in so-called safe seats, 
by a safe seat, this means that a Democrat is going to come out of that district or a Republican. Um, it got that way usually because legislatures in those states redistricted after the decennial census. And uh, very frequently, uh, members of the legislature created these districts. So the debate going on in Virginia now because uh, one district was created that apparently was to push African Americans from about three districts into this one and, and thus change the complexion of the ones around and so forth. I make this point because uh, if you're a member and you're in a safe district, you would say, well, that's great. I'm, I'm here for a, a while and um, I can take my time. And, but the problem is that the safe district then is uh, in a primary each two years in the House. And there are all sorts of groups in America that have their own scorecards. They're very different than the constituents maybe in the district. They may be a club for growth or Freedom Works or the rifle people or lots of folks. And um, they would say that we want a candidate who is our candidate, who is going to, to follow our line, our rules. As a matter of fact, we're prepared even in a small district to throw in maybe a couple of million dollars uh, just to make sure everybody knows who's who. So it's not the leadership of the party in the district anymore. It's people in Washington or San Francisco or what have you. Um, and furthermore, the member who is the safe seat becomes very fearful of being unseated because uh, that member deviates from the scorecard. Now, this is not a very happy situation in America. In part, it comes from the Supreme Court decision that uh, unlimited political giving could occur, and much of it anonymously, uh, and people have taken advantage of that. Uh, in the presidential race this time, it doesn't seem to have made that much difference, to be truthful. But in the congressional races in a small district, with a huge impact of that variety, members are fearful. So what happens if the, if the member wants to stay there for a while, he or she becomes very dogmatic, very ideological. And it's my way or the highway. This is not a person that's going to engage in civil discussion. It's, it's a person, as a matter of fact, uh, who is going to be a standard bearer for somebody out there. And uh, that has changed the nature of the debate very substantially. You go into a room and there are a number of people who might be fairly friendly. They're congenial in a social way, but their lives are at stake, they believe, politically, if they cross the line with regard to concessions, and uh, that changes the picture. Let when, me ask. when you have low voter turnout in the primaries, you tend to get the activist ideological voter. On the Democratic side, it tends to be the more liberal. On the Republican side, the more conservative. So that the elected officials' base, electoral base, is very left or very right. And they get, as Dick has said, they get elected by appealing to that base. They don't have to worry about the general election. So the voter gets what the voter votes for. And when you have low voter turnout and these uh, uh, ideological primaries, left and right, you get gridlock. That's what you get. Well, it seems also to extend that to the presidential race and the primary system. That's also seems to be forcing the presidential candidates into a position that it's, it's at the two polar ends of the ideological spectrum. It's in the nomination process yes. especially. Yes. 
In the general election, because the presidency is such a big deal and so many voters, so many states, it may not apply quite as much, uh, I think. It does winnow candidates, though, at the primary stage. Oh, at the primary stage. In terms stage, of who you right. have to select That's correct. Yes. That's correct. once you have the general election. Yeah. Your choice may saying. be very limited, <laughs> even if it's a big turnout. Absolutely. The, the voters will say, but what are my choices <laughs> as I take a look at this? Yeah, they just might say that. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask this, kind of connected to that. Do you think there are those in politics, some, who use incivility as a political strategy? In other words, does incivility have its utility? Well, I hate to name names, but I would... Uh, <laughs> I wasn't I, I asking for names. An arch, an arch type of this is Senator Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is one of the most unpopular people that has ever been in the Senate. Uh, and I say this uh, simply because he goes out of his way, really, uh, to be very sharp and cross and nasty, as the case may be. But nevertheless, um, Senator Cruz is still in the presidential primary run, one of the, at least uh, the two most likely to be the nominee. And um, that type of uh, action with regard to many uh, Republicans uh, and maybe other people that are not Republicans, but um, sort of like somebody who talks to them, is just what they are looking for. Somebody as nasty and as tough and as brutal as possible. I, I'm, I think this is unfortunate, but I would say that probably Ted Cruz has found that this is a successful strategy for him. And, and thus far it's been enormously successful for a fairly junior senator without really much background whatever, in terms of national politics, in terms of any basis in foreign affairs and the perils that our country has in the world uh, to be at this point, possibly as a Republican candidate. Well, I, I, I don't think of a lot of examples where people used incivility purposely. I guess it's done. I remember one occasion, Dick, you remember, said Ted Stevens. Yes. I presented the recommendations of some commission to a group of senators, and uh, Ted Stevens, who was a uh, senator from Alaska, got up in the middle of my wonderful and eloquent remarks <laughs> and said, Hamilton, that's the dumbest report I've ever seen in my life in the Senate. And he stomped out. He came back some uh, hours later and admitted that he had tried to turn the group against me on the recommendations. So I've seen it happen, but uh, you gotta be a pretty good actor to pull it off. <laughs> and in that case, he was. You are listening to Profiles on WFIU. The Indiana primary election is on May 3rd, and today, we're listening to conversations on the state of American politics. In a moment, we'll continue listening to a conversation with former Indiana Congressman Lee Hamilton and former Indiana Senator Richard Luger. The conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at the University of Southern Indiana on March 26, 2016. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask, you're sitting on the campus of a public university. What do you think higher education needs to do to reinforce the practice of civility in our educational mission? 
as uh, Lee and I have toured Hoosier communities over the years, and we found situations in which there was not very good governance, whether it was at the local level or mayors of cities or various other things. And you ask, where are the talented people in this city or this county? Well, they were practicing law. They were running businesses. Uh, they were making money internationally, not only delegating to the, sort of the, the also-rans the necessity of public policy, but uh, uh, deliberately staying out of it so they would not be vulnerable to negative attacks or their families would not be vulnerable in this respect. Uh, it's a tough business sometimes. So my, my thought is, from the very beginning, I'm hopeful a large number of students will be thinking about the possibilities at some point in their lives of public service. Now, it may not be elective office. It could be any, a number of ways in which they serve human beings. But there's nothing more satisfying, nothing more important in terms of a life well lived, in my judgment. And this, I think, we need to get through, because when that happens, then people begin to visit with other people who have these aspirations. And uh, you get their ideas or the, their differences or you have a gentle argument or what have you, but you begin to learn how to be effective. How do you conduct a conversation? As we talked about earlier on, and I like Lee's definition of uh, civility is respect. Uh, it's the lubricant that brings about change and choice. And that needs to be thought about and learned from the beginning through practice. There are burdens to citizenship, yes, there are. obligations, and there are. We live in a representative democracy. Representative democracy is one of the grandest achievements in the history of mankind. You and I didn't do anything. We just had it handed to us. But it is not on automatic pilot. It takes people who are willing to step up to the responsibility of being a good citizen, not just voting. Part of the title to this program is Civility and the Common Good, right? That's an enormously important thing. The obligation of citizenship is not just to be informed, not just to vote, not just to join organizations, uh, like-minded organizations, not just to contact your representative. The obligation of citizenship is to make your corner of the world a little better for the common good. And we have to get that imbued into the lives of more of our citizens. There are a lot of government problems, a lot of problems today that government cannot solve. And they need citizen action. So I had a parent in Clark County who lost a daughter at a railroad crossing because they didn't have the right red flasher lights. One of these horrible tragedies. And she became an advocate in this state for putting red lights at every dangerous railroad crossing in the state. And early on when I was elected to Congress, my next door neighbor walked across the street and said, Lee, for heaven's sakes, Make sure they put a label on food. I'm a diabetic and I don't know whether the food has any sugar in it. Now that's a long time ago, but he prompted a group of people all over the country it developed. And now when you go to the supermarket, you stand there and read the labels, right? That came about because people, citizens, 
were concerned that they didn't know what they were eating. Go down to southeastern Indiana, they used to have a drought every August. And I would get behind trucks hauling water. Drought. And they then formed a water management district, citizen action. And now they have a reliable supply of water in some of those counties because the water is managed properly. Government needs the prod from citizens. <laughs> and uh, if we don't get it, this country is going to be in deep trouble. We have to have citizen involvement. And the top people coming out of our universities have to supply that. Now, let me say something that will set a lot of people on edge here. Is that okay? Go ahead. <laughs> I hear a lot of talk about the necessity of science, technology, engineering, and math. Now, who can be against that? I'm not against it. Please don't call them say I'm against it. But if you do not produce good citizens... All the science and technology and engineering and math won't be worth a diddly damn. <laughs> All right. About half of them applauded and half of them were mad as hell. Yeah. Uh, that, and it kind of lead, it led into incivility as a stratagem that tends to get a lot of media attention, and then you have individuals who get most of their news coverage from some of the news entertainment programs. And so the question is, how do you think this affects the perception of the seriousness of the issues that we have to grapple with? Well, it's had a disastrous effect. I would just say simply that um, to the extent that the, the drama uh, of incivility is broadcast, carried again and again and again, and uh, people both enjoy it because of the actors, but likewise because they believe that uh, the actors are punishing those that are creating the hurt that they feel, why it goes on and on. Um, uh, there's no good answer to it. The networks have created a debate format perhaps because of the number of candidates originally on the Republican side, so that everybody had his or her say. And this meant one-minute answers or jabs here or there or what have you. Trying to analyze, for example, what should our country do with regard to ISIL in Syria or in Iran or in Libya or with regard to terrorist attacks now in Paris or Brussels? And this is very complex, to say the least. But this is what the next president is going to have to deal with, or at least appoint people who have the background and the knowledge to be able to help deal with it, both diplomatically and militarily. And um, that doesn't come through in the current coverage of the debate style or the social media or what have you. I think there may be some reaction to that after this particular campaign. My guess is a lot of people are going to begin editorializing uh, both as students and faculty, but as regular citizens. And this is not really very helpful in terms of understanding. I hope that's the case, that we are reaching a nadir. But uh, otherwise, so we're in for 
some very problematic uh, political problems because the people that will get elected will get elected not with any basic knowledge of what the world is like or how, in fact, to move things. And they may not, uh, in fact, know very many people who could be helpful. They might not have a network, <laughs> as a matter of fact, of that sort. And that is, is, is really a, a detriment to the quality of government. And I think we're, we're seeing a manifestation of that now. I hope we all see it sufficiently and get over it and just sort of move on. I'm very concerned about the quality of the public debate and the public dialogue. And uh, I think a lot of it involves the media. I began watching television in the days of Edward R. Murrow and Walter <clears throat> Cronkite. The media, the, the TV has become much more partisan, much more ideological, much less objective than it used to be. The print media, there are very, very few really good print media newspapers in the country today that give comprehensive coverage to national and international news. I don't know the economics of the news business. I know it's very tough. But uh, there does seem to me to be a, a deterioration in the quality of information it comes from the news media, and it's more uh, slanted, uh, less objective. So I think we got a real challenge in the country because if you don't have good information, as Dick was saying, you, you can't make good judgments. These problems that presidents have to wrestle with, Dick mentioned ISIL, if you look at the quality of the debate among presidential candidates today, on an issue like ISIS or ISIL, the gap between the level of that debate and the challenge that the next president will have to face in dealing with that problem is just breathtaking and very deeply worrisome. In other words, they're not discussing intelligently, substantively, comprehensively really tough issues. So we got a problem that's serious in terms of the future of representative democracy. You are listening to Profiles on WFIU. The Indiana primary election is on May 3rd. Today, we're listening to conversations on the state of American politics. In a moment, we'll continue listening to a conversation on the topic of civility in American politics with former Indiana Congressman Lee Hamilton and former Indiana Senator Richard Luger. The conversation was recorded in front of a live audience in March of this year. My name is Marianne Fox, and I feel a tad helpless as I watch the discourse among all the presidential candidates and congressional candidates because I'm just one person, one vote, and the best I can do is turn the TV off. 
So I look for other, other ways to monitor the behavior. And so my question is, what is the role of the political parties in monitoring and establishing the standards for civil discourse? Well, I would just answer quickly that uh, this is a source of consternation, to say the least, for the National Republican Party, because the feeling of Rance Priebus and the others is they've lost control altogether. That um, they have very little to say as to who made the nominee may be, even how the convention might be run, quite apart from the campaign. Um, that uh, is an awesome situation, but that's the fact of the matter, at least uh, within the Republican Party. I think the uh, political parties have been seriously weakened, in large part because of social media, and they're not nearly as effective as a group as they used to be, but I still think they have a following and they have a role to play, and part of that role has to be to uh, enforce uh, standards of conduct of uh, candidates. I think those of us who are partisans uh, have an obligation to express ourselves when we see conduct that we don't like, and I think political parties have that responsibility. I had a friend of mine I watched on C-SPAN one time, a Democrat, give a speech on the floor of the House. I agreed with him on the substance of what he was saying, and I called him up afterwards and told him his speech was just awful because it was mean-spirited, highly excessively partisan, tore into the motivation of the other side, unfairly, I thought. I wish I'd do that more. I think the point is, I think you and I have an obligation. Look, if, if I see a Republican get up on the floor of the House and he gives a mean-spirited partisan speech, and I call him, he's not going to pay any attention to me, nor should he. My influence here has to be in my party. And I think I should use, try to use that influence. I think you ought to do the same. When your favorite candidate or your favorite speaker, political speaker, crosses the line into excessive partisanship and incivility, I think you and I have an obligation to speak up. And I certainly think the political parties do. The state committee and the national committee uh, have a role to play. I don't know, uh, state committee chairman in both of our parties, I think play very important roles in developing candidates uh, to run for all kinds of offices in the state. They have a lot of influence and I think they have to exercise it. And should. What is your opinion of term limits? I served 34 years in the United States Congress. <laughs> I am not and never have been a strong advocate of term limits. Now, first of all, I understand why the idea of term limits is attractive. You've got a lot of people in political office you don't like, you don't know how to get rid of them, and you want to throw them out. And the term limit does that. 
So that's on the plus side. But think of it this way. Term limits limit my power as a legislator. If you take power away from me as a legislator, because I can only serve three terms, power in our system does not evaporate, it flows. To whom does it flow? It flows to the bureaucrat, unelected, and to the executive branch. And one of the great problems in our government is the drift of power to the executive branch. That's another whole story, but it distorts that. And furthermore, term limits are a limitation on democracy. You tell the voter you can vote for anybody you want to except this person. What's the next limitation you're going to put on? So I don't think term limits are good for representative democracy. There's another factor here, and that's just the complexity of government. I served three terms on the Intelligence Committee before I figured out all the acronyms. <laughs> we have a very complicated government. And knowledge is power. And you do gain some knowledge when you serve in the Senate as long as Dick did and serve in the House as long as I did. You pick up some information. So I see a lot of problems with term limits. And uh, I don't think they work to strengthen democracy. I think they would weaken it. And I, my impression is, I haven't studied this carefully, that the states that have adopted them have not had a very good experience with it. Because as soon as you elect a guy or a woman to a position and they can only serve six years or eight or whatever, what do they do? They begin figuring, well, what did I, what's my next job? And half of their time in office is figuring out how to get in another office with another term limit. It doesn't work very well. Well, I'm in agreement with believe it uh, would not be a good idea, at least for members of Congress, to have the term limit situation for all the reasons he suggested. Uh, I, I just found from my own experience that I've cited the Nunn-Luger Act, but I could also cite uh, several pieces of farm legislation that originated when I was chairman of the Agriculture Committee. Uh, my dad was really uh, so unhappy with Franklin Roosevelt when I was a boy that um, when the Roosevelt dimes were minted, we would go to a cafeteria on every Thursday night to relieve my mother of making supper. And inevitably, my dad would get a Roosevelt dime and change. And I said, oh, here we go again. He would, <laughs> he, he would slam the dime down and give a lecture to the poor clerk and what have you. But, uh, so I, but I found it as a boy working on the farm that the problem was that uh, the New Deal legislation limited the acreage of corn and soybeans and wheat that my dad could grow. Now, the rationale at the time was that if you restricted the supply in America, the price would go up for farmers. Um, this seems like a totally inhumane solution presently as we try to think of how we're going to feed the world. But nevertheless, it was a crisis in, in agriculture, and that was one solution. But it continued on and on. 
uh, because um, there was really nobody who could break up the side. Now, that was one of the wonderful things that Pat Roberts, who's still serving in the Senate from Kansas, he was the House member then. We teamed up, he was chairman of the House Committee, I was chairman of the Senate Committee, and we ended that, and, and we came, therefore, to a new policy of the right to put your acreage in whatever you wanted. But then we really had to stay with it for a while. This was a very large change in American agriculture. And it led to a, a lot of dealings with the Agriculture Department, with the Farm Bureau, uh, with the National Farmers Union, with all sorts of people all over America who were involved in agriculture, who were witnessing a huge change in terms of supply of markets, of potential exports or lack of them, all the rest of it. Um, I, I, as I say, mentioned the Nun Luger thing to begin with because that required 20 years of supervision, literally every year with the appropriation process, with the new people in the administration who were not acquainted with the program. Um, frequently, I guided them through situations in Russia uh, so they could meet the Russians and find at least what needed to happen in those administrations. So it's all well and good to sort of say this is a good way of getting rid of the malefactors, just determine their limits. But uh, I would just say as a practical matter, it would not be a good idea, and the voters still should have the choice, if they wish, to, to continue uh, their memberships. It's been a wonderful evening listening to the two of you. What a privilege it's been. That was University of Southern Indiana President Linda Bennett hosting a conversation with former Indiana Congressman Lee Hamilton and former Indiana Senator Richard Luger. It was recorded in front of a live audience at the University of Southern Indiana on March 26, 2016. The Indiana primary election is on May 3rd, and today on Profiles, we're listening to conversations on the state of American politics. Next, we'll hear an archived Profiles conversation with NPR's national political correspondent, Mara Liason. Former WFIU news editor Gretchen Frazee spoke with Mara Liason in 2015. Let's start off with what you've called the single most dramatic moment in the eight years of covering the White House during the Clinton administration, when the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke. Can you just kind of recall for me, when did you first hear that news? Well, that was certainly the most dramatic moment for me because I had a previously scheduled interview with Bill Clinton because this was right before he was delivering the State of the Union address and presidents often give a couple interviews before that to preview some of the things they're going to say. So we woke up in the morning and we saw the Washington Post had this story about Monica Lewinsky testifying in this grand jury, you know, this investigation of Bill Clinton. And we were stunned. We didn't know about it. Nobody did. And I remember talking to Robert and looking, we looked at each other and we said, well, I guess we're going to have to ask him about this. Ugh. We wondered whether the interview would be canceled. And what they did during the day is they kept on moving the three interviews back and back and back. And I think we finally interviewed him around 4 p.m. or 4.30, maybe close to 5. But the point is, all things considered, was on the air. But it wasn't live because we didn't have the capability of coming live from the Oval Office. But what we did is we would take chunks of it and an engineer would run it back and feed it. So we fed it in 10-minute segments. So it was it was almost live. It was like tape delayed. So we did talk to him about this, and I did ask him, gee, Mr. President, I said, was there any kind of relationship with this woman that might have been misconstrued? <laughs> That's how 
Little we knew then. And he said, well, Mara, I don't know any more about this than you do. And that was my interview with Bill Clinton. And of course, subsequently, it became a big major scandal and he was impeached. But 16 years later, I tell people those were the good old days. If the biggest problem facing the country was whether or not the president had an affair and lied about it, the U.S. would be doing great. In other words, when you think about all the things and the challenges this country has had since then, that seems like a much more innocent time, even given that that was the biggest problem facing the country. So people were really trying to grapple with this, you know, as a nation. How was it different for, for you as a reporter? Well, that it seemed, I think even then we understood that it was crazy to be spending all of your waking moments wondering about a blue dress as opposed to things that are really important to the American people. But that's what the Capitol was obsessed with. It remained that way. There was a dynamic. The Republicans did overreach. He was impeached. But that didn't stop him from being from presiding over a period of peace and prosperity, which really is the, the ways that presidents are judged. As I mentioned earlier, you're also a contributor to Fox News, and that's stirred up some recent debate in recent years. Yes, I'm a contributor to Fox. I appear on two different shows there, Fox News Sunday occasionally, and something called Special Report, which is the weekday cable show. Brett Baer is the host, and there's a panel of journalists, and I sit on it. And previous to him, it was Britt Hume. And I've been doing this since 1998. At some times, it's been controversial at NPR among some listeners. And We should mention yeah. at this point that many of our listeners will remember back in 2010, NPR fired Juan Williams for some comments he made on Fox News about Muslims. And we won't get into that. But, you know, it has brought up a lot of questions is should NPR contributors and, and reporters beyond these other programs, um, which have different ethics policies and that sort of thing? Right. How have you dealt with that? Those criticism? are legitimate questions. And NPR has a very clear policy about that which I find to be the best policy, which is I don't say anything on Fox that I wouldn't say on NPR and vice versa. I am not an opinion columnist or a pundit. I'm an analyst and a reporter. And I function in that role in both places. In other words, my role doesn't change. My approach doesn't change. And that's the way I conduct myself. And that's the NPR policy. And I think that's the right thing. This has been as you said, certainly a source of controversy over the years, but it's also been something that's been considered very carefully by NPR, by the management there, by the ombudsman. And they have come to a conclusion that not only is it okay for me to do this, but it's good for NPR. And I think that there is a lot of cross-pollination of the two audiences. And yes, the audience for Fox is more conservative. And yes, the audience for NPR is more liberal. But there is more of an overlap than you would think. So that kind of leads me to my next point. The NPR ombudsman wrote a piece about you last year, and it's titled A Fair and Balanced Look at Mara Lyson. And and he reviewed both your reporting on Fox and on NPR, and he explains how in most situations, like you said, in the, the Fox News hosts have not tried to force your hand or make you give an opinion or anything. And his conclusion is basically that political reporters walk this really fine line between, you know, giving the public the information they need and, and not being perceived as partisan. Do you think it's harder to walk that line now than it was, say, 20 years ago? Absolutely. No doubt about it. Polarization is a fact of American life. It's the most important political dynamic, the most significant political dynamic, I think, today. And the media is no exception. 
what do we say? Fox and MSNBC don't even cover the same natural disasters. So the media is polarized. And um, it is very hard because everybody's a partisan and people listen to the news that agrees with them. And I really feel there is a place for straight ahead, down the middle analytical reporting that's not partisan. And I think NPR strives to be that way. And I feel that I strive to be that way. And it is hard, but... I really am down the middle. In other words, I don't feel like I have all of these extreme opinions that I'm struggling to keep inside. You know, I I feel that I, I'm pretty comfortable in the spot that I am, which is not being an opinion pundit. But is it difficult to to explain to people what your role really is when when people are so used to seeing so many pundits on, on television and, and on talk radio? I don't have a problem explaining it. And I think people understand what I do and what and how what I do is different from what Juan Williams or Charles Krauthammer does. Although I agree with you, you know, there are so many people whose job is to give opinions as opposed to analysis. But I think it's really important that there are journalists who still stay away from opinions and stick to analysis. Why, why is that important? Could you expand? Well, I think it's important because I'm not saying there is some kind of scientific paragon of objectivity. But I think it's important because then not everything is a kind of argument and people are in their corners and no matter what they think, they have to hew to the party line. I mean, to me, the most interesting, refreshing politicians are the ones who say, I mean, I'm making this up hypothetically. I was against the Iraq war. I think it was a mistake to get in. But now that we're in, we can't pull out because we'd leave all these people to their deaths. Instead of because I was against it, we should pull out immediately. In other words, looking at the facts and making a judgment about that. There used to be lots of people in Congress who were like that. Over time, Congress has become more and more polarized, as the country has. And on a recent Reddit conversation you had, I believe you were talking about millennials and, and how they might influence the political sphere in the next few years. And you said something interesting about um, that the trend seems to be more towards socially liberal and fiscally conservative. Can you explain what you mean well, by that? Well, I think that I don't want to exaggerate the fiscally conservative part, but I do think that now that the millennials, actually it's the, Amer the majority of American people, majorities now believe that gay marriage is okay. They believe that climate change is caused by humans they believe that people who are here illegally for a certain period of time should be able to get legalized. In other words, there are a lot of basic social issues that millennials have led the way on. And I do think, and especially now that the Supreme Court has spoken and basically paved the way for same-sex marriage to be legal across the country, that the Republican Party will feel a great pressure to become more socially liberal which is going to be something that I, as a journalist, am very interested in watching since they are the party of traditional marriage, pro-life, and conservative cultural values. Mm -hmm. How do they reach out to millennials? How do they reach out to the rising American electorate who, whose most important reason for voting Democratic are the social issues? So I do think that that is pushing the country in a more socially liberal direction. Abortion is a little bit different. Abortion has stayed very stable in public opinion for a long time. People think it should be legal with restrictions. However... The fiscally conservative part, I think, is a little more complicated. Millennials do see a role for government. And I think that as we have slow growth and as we have tremendous income inequality, there's going to be more pressure to maintain the safety net. Um, more people are going to need it. 
But on the other hand, we are facing big fiscal issues in this country. And at some point, we're going to have to have a big budget, a grand bargain on the budget. And we're going to have to make some cuts in spending and reform our tax system and shore up our entitlements so that they are there for the baby boom generation. And I think that that will call for a certain measure of fiscal conservatism. We've got a tape here of an archived report of yours. It's just a couple of weeks before the 2002 midterm election. And here you're reporting about something we've seen now on a daily basis, and that's the increasing number of in this case, negative ads, and how politicians are spending an increasing amount of money on those ads. Um, Let's take a listen to that real fast. In states and congressional districts where the campaigns are extremely close, voters could be seeing literally thousands of political ads this year. If you were able to flip the channels on a giant national television set, here's what you might encounter. Mom raised eight of us by herself. We were poor, but she raised us right. John Sanchez. She's a typical politician. Tim Johnson's been flying all around the world for free. Now this radical group is riding into Arkansas to support Mark Pryor. Germany, New Jersey, Beijing, Hong Kong. E. coli tainted meat. Colorado kids falling ill. Our food safety net is failing. And so is Wayne Alley. Enron, the symbol for corporate greed. Yet Congresswoman Nancy Johnson. He our paychecks, our gas tanks. Johnson texts seniors on Social Security. Call Jim Talent and tell him his vote shattered lives. Kids are like, dang, what happened to daddy's company? Alex Castellanos is a Republican media consultant who's been making campaign ads for years, but he's never seen a more crowded arena. The whole political uh, battlefield has become more cluttered. Now it's not just the candidates that are starting earlier and interceding in the other primaries. There are more campaigns. There are independent issue groups, advocacy groups. There are a lot of more people out there who are... So for a story like this, it's really easy for the listener to hear all these sounds from these campaign ads, and you really get drawn into that. But do you think people understand the hard work it takes to understand all the the economics, the finances, everything behind this? Well, I don't know. You mean behind putting together the story? Yes. Well, first of all, I don't know if listeners understand the hard work that goes into putting together a story, nor do I want them to. Why should they? I'm doing the work, bringing them a story. They don't have to know how hard it is or how easy it is. or You know, everybody works hard at their jobs. But I just hope that they learn something about the issues that I'm talking about. One thing that did strike me when I heard that, that was 2002. So that's, uh, you know, 12 years ago. I think I've gotten better since then. It seemed... (laughs) Thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. That was former WFIU news editor Gretchen Frazee speaking with Mara Liason in 2015. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1300. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.